originally produced by our team at Ingenuity Radio in 2002, Searching for the New Liberalism is a nine-part series adapted for this podcast, The Life of a Servant. Welcome to Part 6. This segment focuses on economic issues and features Robert Greenhill, Barry Appleton, Kimon Valaskakis, Robert Richardson, Dennis Mills, Sanford Borens, and Jerry Grafstein. So the first person is Robert Greenhill, who will be commenting on Maple Self. When Bob Thackeray referred to Walton Gordon's three albums to take away, I guess one of the elements I see faith in this is one of the key themes is liberalism in 2002 is all about global engagement uh, in a very practical and concrete sense. I think uh, Lobax ratings on the home scope, on security issues, on international ethical and public policy issues, borders don't matter as much. Having a global approach does. Uh, what I found very interesting, Michael felt that his economic comment came very much to the same conclusion. And that I quote, uh, economic policy is about creating great corporations based on a global scale. And it's clear to those of us who are involved in, uh, business on an international scale, and as President of Avardi Line, literally, uh, in the plane all the time in China, India, Russia, and elsewhere, competing with some of the big giants, seeing the Dallas and others around the world. And it's cool today you let a bit as you were bombing. Mediocrity was always the same. Now it's a fatal characteristic. And if we wish to, as a country and as a economy, uh, be able to thrive in the future and provide the economic wherewithal for all the different social programs we were talking about, it's clear that we need to set as our target to be great on the global scale. But the implications of that, Michael Phelps had two very specific Point first is we do need to think about vaccine champions. Chanting to can compete on a global scale like the Milkiers can uh, from Finland. Secondly, there are certain irritations from the tax policy not level and accounting differences uh, that actually cause transaction costs for people thinking of investing here or corporations who are investing abroad to compare to close activity taking place in the United States. I'd also add to that three implications for us in our considerations today. First, I think we need to fundamentally reconsider our attitude towards English states. Um, some of the comments I heard here today reminded me of attitudes from the Vietnam War era. And let me show you, you a secret. I, as a proud Canadian, think the United States is an extraordinary country. And I think the world is a better fight for creation of continued existence. And it's not a dumb giant. With 670 years, the top thousand scientists around the world, it's a great place of learning. I also happen to believe that from 1867, Canada was designed to be a superior system of governance than the United States. And so, I guess my first description is, let's not focus on bitching about the United States, let's focus on how we're going to beat the United States. And as a corporate executive, what I would like to see us engaged in is how we can together, all different stakeholders, figure out ways to make Canada the preferred global platform for people wanting to engage in the North American economy. 
And David Pico had actually on his stride as one of the key albums to cross them and say, all the Canadian cities. But we how do we get the Asian and European headquarters to actually locate here to see this as their value-added uh, entry point into the North American economy? And that's part of a different mindset that we should engage, not a defensive one, but a proactive one, and a constructively aggressive one. I would say, secondly, we should also think out if you course that global engagement means. And we should come up with a very coordinated approach across uh, the diplomatic core, across what we're doing in the sense, what we're doing in the corporate world as well, so that we can, in an integrated fashion, project the soft power of what Canadian values can really represent. And I'm not sure that liberalism, that's a loaded phrase, but there is something which is Canadianism, which is a practical idealism that's going to work in a step-by-step way to make the world a better place, which is very powerful in the political level, it's also very powerful in the corporate and economic level, and it resonates with many of the societies who want to engage in the global marketplace share some of our concerns about doing it without any consideration for social implications. But this will require a much more coordinated approach across the private and public sector, provincial and federal governments as well, and it will require more funds. The third element is I think we should also have an expansive attitude towards what it was to be Canadian and where Canadians should continue to be involved in this development of Canadianism. One of the interesting things I heard today was the idea of the Canadian diaspora, and not the idea of a brain thing, but a brain exchange. And economically and politically, how powerful it would be if we continue to have Canadians outside Canada continue to be engaged. And all the students and others who came to Canada to learn to love much of what we represent and are now back in science and elsewhere, considered to fill themselves honorary Canadians. And there are practical ways to put in place whereby we can continue to involve them. The implications of doing those three things right, I think, is that it will allow us to, at an economic level, become globally more competitive. It will also, I think, reinforce the idea of what uh, Pierre Trudeau said many years ago, uh, be a citizen of Canada to be a citizen of the world. And the challenge for Canada and the Canadian government is to make sure that Canada again becomes a leading citizen of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next, we have Barry Appleton, the commenting on Tom, actually. Well, Tom Taper invites us to challenge some of our longstanding perceptions about the United States. And he's doing a provocative and I would say as a virtual public policy prescription uh, that proposes a way to Canadians to regain a sense of greatness on a global scale. And um, you should get sucked at him, Tom. Uh, and he has done that. Um, but not only has he given us uh, a goal, he's actually set out in his paper a very specific economic roadmap how to get there. Now, the devil's in the details. The fact of the matter is that we could have an entire conference just talking about your paper, Tom. But there is something there for us to really get our teeth into and to be able to engage and to distrust. And that to me is a real idea of what you want to do on a concept like this, and I really think you have to commend you for it. So now that we've seen a commend you, let me add a couple of comments to things you might have left out. Those some areas where I think might be relevant for discussion. So first point, I think you make very valid, and that is our capacity to work with the United States and the international system is pretty interesting. It is definitely an area that we need to deal with, 
this is not new. We should have had the same point at the Kingston conference uh, almost uh, 50 years ago, uh, where, in fact, these various things issues have been talked about. But what's happened is that the United States has changed. The U.S. has changed fundamentally. It's not just a future power. It's not just a friendly neighbor to the, to the South. It really is, in real terms, a hyperpower. And I think that's very important for us to underscore. Because the special relationship has been forgotten. Or in other words, our perceptions that somehow we are the best friends of the United States. You know, the U.S. has such a relationship with uh, Mexico and with the United Kingdom and with Barbados and with Indonesia and Belize and a whole pile of countries. What we believe is a special monogamous relationship is not exist anymore. And we are different. We have credibility problems. I've had you as having the secretaries tell me that they don't always believe us when we call them off on the phone. I think that's a rather perplexing type of problem. Because credibility is an issue. But we also have a problem, and that fundamentally, we are a non-voting lobby group in Washington. We are the largest trading partner, but they put that hat. We are just another interest, and we have no vote. So you know, there'll be November elections, so maybe 50 seats at all. Not one of them says small enough. And as a result, we have very significant issues that we need to address, but we don't want the emotional obsession. So, Tom, I think that you've addressed some of the, the issues in your cases. You've actually pointed out, I think very rightly, that the Mexicans, for the ambassadors who basically cabinet level, they retain all types of lobbyists and lawyers and people like that. They don't need to be lawyers. Um, it's just, we need to be lobbyists because we do everything through our embassy. And if you can't deal with a myriad issue. And then we talk about issues right now, I mean, from our perspective, fossil lumber, meat, cultural issues, energy issues, things could take the entire staff of our embassy on any one of them, and we have all of them, and there's significant impact to us upon. The second issue then is, how do these Canadians then try to contain this American deep? And in fact, we use that by rules-based systems like NASA. And to the extent that rules and things like want to have worse, they work very well. The steel is the phase are a tremendous problem because steel is a NASA. Our problem is, if all of those big hot issues are the debut, oh, I've tried a NASA. They're all like one. And so the URT do whatever it wants, and we have no way of constraining them in the face of real domestic politics and in the political system. That's the real problem. Canadians have to find a way to deal with that. And unfortunately, with that, we're going to have ongoing problems. And it's like every regional country, and there's significant issues with that. Of course, one of the issues that we do have that's so useful there is that some issues, like regional development, are actually committed by NASA, but many issues should have been better. And that's another point that you both possible about. That the process of citizen engagement in these agreements is to be made better. And as we look at new ways, a liberal government would have to consider this in the future. How do you get people to better engage and better rejuvenate that protest, or else you can't engage in it? The old agreement, the structure of the Thursday post-Second World War trade agreement, those are over. We have to find a new way, a better way to engage. The final point I want to talk about is the, the especially you have, which I think is really very interesting, talking about selling carriers of effective ideas. These are the types of programs that are, by the way, very controversial. 
you're talking about giving up immediate false ratification. Nobody in politics ever wants to sell an electorate that they have to give out. But you're saying, we're going to give you something better if you work with us. We're going to give you something that is worth being in Canada for. That was the reason that Canada developed as it did at the turn of the last century. People came here, it was very painful, it was very difficult, but to something better in the future. And as a country and as a government, it happens under much about that. Now, let's not to say the deficit issue was not important. It was absolutely critical. But that's basically under control now. Our, our, so that, yeah, I might disagree. I'm not sure you economists are not. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's time for a new direction. If we wanted to be able to guarantee that have the decisive Canadian social program, the Canadians often define themselves by our health care. How you engage in new types of programs, so you should have, in essence, the more chance to put the trust on to do that. I think you still have the first really controversial but interesting proposal for how to do that. It may not mean that it's going to be easy, and it may not be that it's politically accessible by the way. Uh, and that's worthy of discussion. But I think that it's a very interesting kind of year that really models the real consideration, and I just have to commend you for engaging in the type of food idea that I think that needs to be getting your conflict on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, Barry, and next year, and uh, Iman Dalit Beckett on Northern Medicine's paper. Thank you, Don. Uh, on the whole, I, I liked uh, Lorna's paper quite a lot, and rather than uh, repeat it, uh, what I'm going to do is uh, focus on one issue, which I think is extremely important, and this is easy to innovate and uh, innovation strategy. Uh, from the London point of the international comparison that we did back in my new uh, years, I think Canada has not had an innovative strategy as of yet. I hope that the, the innovation strategy that is coming out will, will be very interesting and effective. But I think the best we have so far and the best we've all had is probably is an invention. And the great distinction between invention and innovation is that invention is in the realm of ideas. And innovation is in the realm of economics. The Shimadir is not translated into economics. Uh, and the, the topic of this panel, of course, is uh, the economics of it. Then it's not really, um, it's not really an innovation. Uh, if you look at the economic history of Canada, the technology history of Canada, you find that Canada is a net export of ideas. The net export of people with ideas and a net importer of machines and software that embodied these ideas. In fact, uh, the, uh, for a long time, the chief thing was uh, this, uh, if you look at the history of an inventor innovative, it showed, well, it was invented in Canada, patented in the U.S., manufactured in Asia, and it was imported in China. So basically, uh, we have, uh, we have perhaps emphasized too much uh, the ideas level, the invention level, and not specifically the innovation. There's a temptation to go abroad to see the Canadian diaspora abroad is exceedingly great. So this means that the history of science and technology could be interpreted as a history of missed opportunities. If you look at uh, the number of missed opportunities where we didn't go all the way, you can track back all the way to Earl of Post and the Avril Arrow, which never became what it could have become, which would have been the basis of a very 
important pillars faith uh, industry in Canada. If you look at the first word process, well, the first word process that ever was invented in Montreal by AES Ultra. And they never had those support. They never managed to go ahead. The result was that around in the U.S., the developed the word processing in lots of assets uh, computers became much more general. Uh, the Sullivan, the Polygon was uh, the video check for the 70s and was supposed to be well, the 80s and was supposed to compete with the mini tail and uh, it never actually came to fruition. Uh, so that was another missed opportunity. I think the uh, basically one of the things we have to do is the same as the public policy. We have to look at why you're missing these opportunities and look at the bottleneck. And I think one of the bottlenecks is the adversarial system that we had. We have the federal, provincial, municipal, uh, and the, that means that uh, we ha it takes too long between the, a good idea and its execution. In fact, it takes so long that the temptation is to take it abroad. And uh, in, from that point of view, I think, uh, although it makes sense to have a very active research strategy and a very active fuel research strategy, I think it's not to be complemented by the uh, strategy of the tasking who have had the uh, have had the education of Gordon Zeeland here and uh, focus not not on an invention strategy but on an on innovation strategy. If you look at the case of the U.S., U.S. has more Nobel Prize winners than the rest of the world, but most of them are not born in the U.S. and were not see that's only thing in the U.S. They change abroad and they change there. So I would say that in the context of uh, Canada's competitiveness, Canada's take in the world. You should focus on developing a balance and a strategy. Use our higher, uh, of higher learning to fit into an overall, uh, economic strategy, which could, uh, include backing its confidence, which could include the left occupation and leases, rather than trying to do everything and ending up, um, educating the third scientist to then go to MIT or Caltech. Or elsewhere to bring to fruition the legislation. Thank you. Next is Paul Richardson. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks to David for an excellent presentation. I was uh, one of the organizers of the Toronto City Summit, so I uh, had the benefit of uh, seeing the presentation uh, twice now that had uh, had a similar reaction uh, last time. And uh, what it tells us is that Toronto uh, and its really other Canadian cities as well have a great future if we get the fundamentals right over the next a short period of time. Uh, it's clear that uh, we're at a crossroads on, uh, on urban issues and uh, we need to act now. And uh, it's only going to happen if urban issues are on the radar screen of the public uh, political decision makers, both at the elected and at the uh, bureaucratic level. And I would argue that it's not, uh, it's better than it was 12 months ago, but it's not on the radar screen in any way that it needs to be. I have to illustrate that better than an excellent presentation of John again at the Toronto City Summit by Joe Barry, who's a partner in uh, urban strategy. He did an analysis of issues of concern that were brought up uh, in the last session of the House of Commons. And the farm income prices came up 700 times. Issues related to the Farm Credit Corporation came up 252 times. Agriculture subsidies came up 162 times, and the issues related to the forest industry came up 109 times. Public transit came up 31 times, homelessness 19, smog and air pollution 19, issues related to HIV AIDS 50, 
and issues related to housing 112. So what it's short, it clearly demonstrates is that urban issues are not yet on, on the radar screen in the manner that they need to be either at the political or the bureaucratic uh, level in uh, in Ottawa. And 80% of Canada's population live in a few large urban areas, so we got to ask why are the issues not breaking through at the federal level. And probably three, three areas of need to take a look at. One is the structure of the federal government. It's our hand when it comes to urban issues. There are literally thousands of bureaucrats in Ottawa on a daily basis working on issues related to forests, uh, related to farms, and uh, related to fish, but there's virtually no one responsible for an urban agenda. So there has to be some balance put back in the overall structure and organization of the federal government. Um, so what's required is something I think that uh, the actually said earlier is to new uh, architect. Uh, in Ottawa, when it comes to urban issues, an urban affairs minister, a deputy minister, uh, a penetration of the bureaucracy uh, of PCO and Treasury Board and Cabinet Committee uh, on uh, on urban issues too, as well, uh, if they are uh, if they are going to come to the fore. The second thing that is required is a new relationship between the city and the federal government. There is a view uh, of some that the cities are a creature of the province. And therefore, the federal government bears no responsibilities for uh, issues related to them. I think that's a dated view, and it's a dangerous one, and it's one that really needs to change. Uh, we do need new relationships. We need a new financial relationship, as uh, as particularly one of the things that Tarek eloquently shows. You can't build infrastructure in a major urban area on the vast and property tax. To be particularly when you have some of the social issues that are faced in Vancouver, in Montreal, or Toronto. It has to be a national effort. It has to be an effort, uh, effort at all three levels of government. We're also wasting some talent and some opportunity, too. Uh, for instance, the area of immigration. Very little concept between a city and senior federal uh, official on, on, uh, as it relates around uh, immigration. doesn't make sense that he to change. I talked to a senior bureaucrat in uh, the city of Toronto, one of the most senior ones, the six billion dollar jurisdiction, larger than four or five provinces, virtually no interaction over a year with any deputy minister at the federal level. And whether it's financing, environment, infrastructure, which the provinces have to sign off on. So it's that sort of even that sort of interaction that uh, that needs to uh, that needs to change. And finally, I would argue that the Liberal Party needs to focus its party policy machinery. More on urban issues, and we need a much stronger urban platform uh, for any issue in its election. I think it's important for us to do these things because if we don't get a urban formation and a structural change in Ottawa, uh, a new relationship with cities, uh, a stronger urban platform, uh, the Liberal Party will become increasingly irrelevant to the 80% of Canadians who live in urban areas. So it's important, as David noted, we should be optimistic about. Uh, about city's prospects over the, over the next 10 years and the proper structure with, uh, with a new relationship and with a solid platform. There's no reason why over the next 10 years you couldn't have a renaissance for Canadian city. Thanks. And thanks very much, uh, Bob. And last but by no means on the program is my uh, parliamentary colleague, uh, Dennis Mill. Your paper, but I would like to ask the question, why is this policy challenge not being addressed? Because this hasn't certain this condition just uh, hasn't uh, come upon us in the last couple of years. 
And I want to go back to something that uh, John Roberts said earlier and Brooke Jeffrey. And he assures the fact that we used to be a party that uh, tried to narrow the gap between the advantage and the disadvantage. And uh, that was part of the reason why I became pro-involved in the Liberal Party. And Brooke referred to Galbraith's book on the culture of contentment. And what we have in our country right now is a population where 65, almost 70% of the country is in the advantage position. They're feeling pretty content. And as the government, every month, when you look at polls, you see we're the most popular Southern in Canadian history, month after month, year after year. So when you go towards the executive of governance and say, look here, I represent a downtown tri, downtown Rowland, where I have people living on the street, you need more affordable housing. I've got kids going to hospitals every day because we're not dealing with climate change, we're not dealing with smog, we're not dealing with transportation issues. Senator, stop complaining, look up the numbers. I'm political practice. And what has been so magnificent about this experience here today is for me, Tom, is that it's brought me back to 1980 when we used to deal with causes rather than polls. And uh, I can actually remember then, you know, you took on Kofishi, you went against Balloon, they weren't popular. And if we got a bump in the polls from 19 to 21, in a month, we all went down to modest evening, celebrated, what a great month for over 20. The notion, the notion that we would dare today, over liberal, to take on or have the courage to risk becoming unpopular is not a very appealing exercise. Uh, this room here is it's not an authentic scene for me that I call genuine liberals in the last 10 years in one room. But the notion of saying, let's see from things, especially in the transportation world, where we may have to be interventionist, we may have to regulate uh, trucking lobbies, we may even have to say it's before our automotive sector, which David Picot so brilliantly uh, described as one of our cornerstones, we may have to say to our auto industry, um, look here, guys, you're going to have to fast-track your technology and uh, an automobile emissions. Or we may have to say to the oil industry, we may have to fast-track the implementation of biodiesel, which this university developed in cell online. But you don't seem to have that courage because it's all still unpopular because it shows against uh, the culture of the advantage. And so... Um, as we're searching for a new liberalism, uh, my view is that uh, unless we really have the courage to risk becoming unpopular, because a lot of these decisions that we're going to have to take are high risk and their communications challenges long, uh, I think that uh, unless we take on that risk, Spend the responsibility walking away from our roots. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Dennis, and the floor is now open. Father Lorna, you got to bear something for me here. The media poll last week on Fox was quite right. Uh, that we're calling Honey, more than the proletarian power. that 43% of the people who responded that they're under serious shifts, they can work 39 on their own time on just have a couple of them together as a stationary. So they're the devil only one. And after 82% of our people are under serious shifts, with one in five actually some point in their personal life. Actually, taking the house and getting the suicide. The main counter will be probably for a program. Adam and Lorna, in terms of what you can work on, I'll see. And now they're throwing themselves off the base. Alright, it, it, so the question now is, how do you score these guys at Bobo with, at this kind of information? I'm Francis Boring, I'm the professor of public management at the University of Toronto. I want to commend Chris Jones on his show. Sphere analysis of this transportation issue. And I want to put the continuum a, a bit further. And this is to suggest that the most efficient uh, answer to the problem of implicit subsidization of your automobile is road pricing. Road pricing using the uh, technology that already exists on Highway 407, namely a combination of transponders and video imaging. Um, by way of a bit of personal experience, I was on the board of the Ontario Transportation Capital Corporation, which is responsible for building Soros Saturday. I was appointed there uh, by Bob Ray, and uh, the uh, conservatives uh, decided that uh, the board went to the hash and sort of a transfer Um The interesting thing that I saw was that there, there, if you remember, the highway was opened about four months before the technology is working. And so Highway 407 was for four months of fuel. And we were, we were deathly afraid that public opinion, and I should say, by the way, that uh, public, what is in public opinion, looked up by the provincial liberal heart, was going to, uh, conclude that uh, Highway 407 was better as a freeway and forget about this polling and, uh, you know, go with it that way. But, uh, that, that wasn't the way things worked out. Public opinion was supportive of, uh, keeping polls on highways, on highway 407, this time it's become a non-issue. And I think it's proven the acceptability of uh, highway polling in an urban setting. Among the direct, uh, though, is that, uh, highway 407 is a private talk. You know, they've done for ideological reasons. There was no, uh, need to do that. Um, if you go to, uh, um, the point that they did decorate about finding new revenue stream and similarly, uh, Tom Atkery's point, uh, about uh, the need for new revenue sources uh, without increasing the deficit and maintaining income tax costs. Well, consider the following. If you were to uh, use road pricing on Highway 401, the Darn Valley Parkway at the Gardner, um, you're talking about a very large revenue stream. It should be devoted to environmental uses, urban transit, you know, all, all sorts of roads that this could be used. And it seems to me, of course, there's looking for... Uh, um, for uh, revenue streams that are consistent with uh, new liberalism. This is uh, an obvious one. Well, let's see the variety of it. Let's wait. I know the image says 
1964, um, I, I organized this thing called the Journal Liberal Thought to foment liberal ideas, and the first uh, article I got was to do something on urban affairs, and I traveled a young lecturer in Manitoba by the name of Lord Oxley to wrote a paper called Towards an Urban Policy. And yet he put in that paper, and I recall it, even though I hadn't read it for two decades, it was four decades ago that he wrote it, so I said we needed a policy from the federal government focused on housing, taxation, transportation, and the city as a trading urban aging flow. So I suggest to you, David, if you want to really take, take a look at hit these, nothing has happened in the last four decades other than the problem to become more intense, that uh, the, the, the viable was all set out way back then, and it, it, uh, I think it was showing the first time. I want to talk about the uh, Canada-U.S. Uh, relationship. Uh, I've been chairman now of the Canada-U.S. Interparliamentary Group for close to a decade. I've got to know, I guess, uh, three dozen senators on a first-name basis, and they're also handy congressmen on a first-name basis, so I can pick them up and call them as readily as I can call Tom or say Lloyd. And what I've discovered, to my amazement, and to, it, it, you can see the amazement, notwithstanding the fact that 85% of our trade is now with the United States and 8% of their trade is with us, we don't even appear on the screens anywhere at any time. Even when the Prime Minister makes a controversial statement, it's, it's picked up in one or two newspapers, but quite frankly, Schroeder says something that perhaps more controversial, and uh, he's on every newspaper and, and every uh, television station across America, but we just don't make the scene. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that Mexico, since NAFTA, is better positioned in the United States politically than we are? Well, first of all, their diaspora, the Mexican diaspora, is well-being and present. But we have a larger diaspora in the United States, and we in Canada don't even know about it. We don't even know about it. I don't When I tried to organize something called the Canada of the U.S. Legion, I went down to the general in New York, and they said, now, do you want to get a lot of Canadian in the United States to come to this event and we know in New York State there's a lot of Canadians. How many are there? I don't know. So I'll discovered by a lot of different means that there's over a million Canadians living in New York State that have deep ties to Canada, large relationships towards it, and we don't even talk to French. The French. You see, Farrakh knows more about French French in his honor than we know about Canadians in America. Example, in the last Election, a person of mine, a dissenting, uh, was enchanting Manager Sister Rock in Canada. She collected the votes because they don't tell us a vote in any strength election. So I, I sent a letter to the Prime Minister about this. I said, the Prime Minister, find out for me how many Canadians live in the United States. So I got a very long letter back, months or two later, saying, I can't really tell you that because you really don't know. And I, even if you knew, it's private and it's conflict against us and it's hard to see how this sort of Put it up on the wall of phone. Typical answer. We have a huge economic interest in knowing where those Canadians are because they, in fact, can do our lobby state in the United States and we don't know who they are. Now I want to deal with the, the helps with proposition about culture failure. Here's a glowing example of where the government and corporate tenants, even when we have a huge competitive advantage, have dropped the ball. And what is it? It's the thing in the It's the most important report that's come down in energy in the last decade. And what does the show in the so And really see, because you're a coach and the show in the U.S., it's very choppy. She's got the first topic right off the Chinese desk, and the, uh, the seniors on in Congress, the driving in Senator Trank's and the South Seas will be the next 
Governor of Alaska, came down to the meeting and handed me the first report and says, Jerry, Jerry, for way for us to work together. And what's the report say? It's very simple. It is more important, quote, transit Lord, than the preemptive choice function of the United States as it accounts to Canada. But the fun in that report was that for us. He said, that's the to trade it for five. He said, you want to have energy that's material. Miracle, what does that mean? We're prepared to cost subsidized supply. Now, who is the biggest supplier of energy in the United States? How proud the Middle East? Kenneth said, we dropped the ball. And what some of the Mikasi wanted was us to build a pipeline from Alaska down to Canada. And he said, well, there's something, there's a problem with that. He said, we're going on the other side. And San Fran of the pipeline, which is the greatest company in the world, where we have a competitive advantage, we build the best pipelines in the bloody world, and they're involved partially. But this is an opportunity for the United States to subsidize the business infrastructure and capital program that you could have had for Alberta and for the Columbia in this lifetime and the next lifetime, and it's sitting in the prime minister's office, and they're diddling with it because they want to look straight to go hard back to them. And he said, well, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. I said, well, I know it's a good idea. Where are you guys in there? So at the end of the day, there could be just on this simple issue Trump did down, Roth and Ontario, the Columbia and Alberta, so the next step heal, technology, science, and it's rock the ball. And the Americans want to subsidize that. You have been listening to The Life of a Servant, a Dennis Mills podcast. Visit DennisMills.com for more information and archived episodes of this program.